Let's pray. Dear Lord, forgive what we have been. Order what we are. And help us to learn what will be. Through your word this morning. Amen. I invite you this morning to turn your Bibles. This thing is loud. And I'm going to get to shouting, so you better turn it down. Huh. I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 9. Ecclesiastes 9 will be in verses 1 through 12 this morning. If you'd like to use one of the Black Pew Bibles provided for you in the chairs in front of you, you can find it on page 550. 7, Ecclesiastes chapter 9. John Donne is one of the greatest poets in the English language. That is probably not the catchiest first line of a sermon because tragically many of you have very little regard for poetry, which is sad because poetry is amazing. Why is poetry amazing, Jeremy? Violets or or whatever, rose or red, violets or blue. I love bacon. How about you, right? What can poetry really do? Poetry holds the unique ability to say profound things simply in ways that move the reader. I am convinced, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that we would all be better people if we took the time it takes to enjoy poetry. Dunn was not only a poet, but he was also a pastor in England at the end of the 1500s and the beginning of the 1600s. He is best known for his incredible use of the English language, particularly when talking about the big things of life, God, time, eternity, and especially death. One of my favorite poems of his about death goes like this. No man is an island, entire of itself. Each is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. If a clod be washed away by the sea, Europe is the less. As well as if a promontory were, as well as if a home of thine own or of thine friends were, each man's death diminishes me. For I am involved in mankind. Therefore, send not to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. Dunn provocatively says at least two things in this poem. Number one, every person's death affects those they are attached to. And number two, every person's death is a vivid reminder of our own deaths. Death is something that has never been an easy thing to deal with. But we Americans have a particular aversion to death. We avoid seeing it at all costs up close and personal. It's something that we somehow glorify in the sacrifice of our soldiers. And are emotionally moved by in movies and the like, but we don't ever want to get near it. We rage against death in our own lives and in the lives of our loved ones, convinced that if we tried hard enough, we could get out of this world alive. 
Death is inevitable, and we all know it, yet we seem to spend an inordinate amount of time distracting ourselves from the reality that you and I and every other living human being is going to die. What should we do about death? Well, our passage in Ecclesiastes can help us answer that important question this morning. I'll summarize the sermon for you now. The author tells us to live the best we can in the face of unstoppable death and an unstable life. Let's read it. The book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, reading through verse 12. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all. How the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know, both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of men are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no more reward. For the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments always be white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For There is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. But time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of men are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As is usually the case in the book of Ecclesiastes, people tend to say that with a bit of like grimace on their face, like, yeah, all right, we say this every week. I think it's true. Some weeks it's a little harder to say than others. The title I take for my sermon this morning is Living Towards Death. I've got three points. Number one, death comes for us all. Number two, what to do in the meantime. Number three, life is 
unpredictable. Here's what I want to impress upon you this morning. If you forget everything else, remember this. Keeping the inevitability of death and the instability of life in mind is the best way to live well. Keeping the inevitability of death and the instability of life in mind is the best way to live well. In case you were curious, point number one, that death comes for us all. Having just compelled his readers to live as wisely as they can in a dangerous time when everything seems kind of crazy, the preacher, the author of this book, now turns to the inevitability of death. And he begins with something that should be a comforting statement. Verse 1 But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Reminds me of that Negro spiritual. He's got the whole world in his hands. 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 He's got the wind and the rain in his hands. He's got the tiny little babies in his hands. He's got you and me brother in his hands. He's got you and me sister in his hands. He's got everybody in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. Seems like a great truth, doesn't it? We teach it to little kids. There's nothing like a bunch of little kids just like belting that song. Got no clue what they're talking about. Singing it with everything they got. Why isn't it as comforting as we might like it to be? Well, because he doesn't end there. He says, whether it is love or hate, man does not know both are before him. See, the fact of the matter is, you exist in the hand of God, and God is all-powerful, and how it's going to end isn't always exactly clear, because you are small and God is big. So it's an uncomfortable place to be. And you might be here this morning going, you know what? Better not to be in God's hands then. But where would that leave you? Precisely in midair is where it would lead you. Maybe you're not a Christian this morning and you think this is all a bit ridiculous. Well, to begin with, welcome. I'm happy you're here. And my hope is that this morning you will be convinced that being in God's hands is the only place to be. In other words, my simple aim is to make you a Christian this morning. Why does the preacher see that being in the hands of God is so difficult sometimes? Well, as he lays out in verses 2 and 3, it's because of this. Everybody dies. doesn't matter how good you are or how bad you are or how clean or dirty you are or how much you sacrifice or don't sacrifice. You're going to die. Let me bring this closer to home. Somebody in this room will be the first one to die. And someone in this room will be the last one to die. And if history holds true, it will actually probably surprise us. You're probably thinking in your mind right now, who's going to be the first person to die? You're thinking, man, I'm going to be the last person to die. Right? Unless you're some of our older saints in this room and you're like, man, I'm going before all you suckers, right? 
peace. I'm, I'm going early, right? Don't matter. I don't want to stick around to the end. Some of you kids are like, there's no way I'm ever going to die. Yes, you are. Probably sooner than you think. It's like, man, I'm only five. Welcome to it. You better get used to it quick. Why? Because living in the face of your inevitable death and instable life is the best way to live well. That's why. doesn't matter how old you are or how young you are. And all you have to do is hang out with people who are dying, who never got used to the idea that they were going to die, to know that getting used to the idea of death early is one of the greatest gifts of being alive. The Puritans, saints that used to live in the 1600s and 1700s, thought that one of the worst things that could befall a human being was dying unprepared. Here's the thing, friends. Whether you live a long time from now or whether you die on the way out of church this morning, you are going to die. What is better than death, according to the preachers, being alive? But even that is of slight advantage. Notice verse 4. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. That sounds good. For two reasons. A living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. Let me, let me just put this forward before you. These are small consolations. A living dog is better than a dead lion. Somebody needs to make a t-shirt. Morgan, get on it. I'll wear that t-shirt every day. Okay. Bling that sucker out. I'll wear it all the time. Get the little, I know it's not right, you know, Blake, don't shoot me, but like the little greater than sign, right? Just living dog. Better than dead lion. I'll wear it all day. You go, that's great. I love my dog. Little historical context. Dogs were the most loathed creatures during the time in which this was written. They were hated worse than rats. And lions, on the other hand, were the most noble and beloved of all creatures. So the preacher's like, I mean, better to be the most despised creature and like be alive than like a dead noble creature. Like, cool, dead dog, great. And then you go, if that wasn't enough, then the second point. And here's the other great thing about being alive. The living know they're going to die. That's great consolation. The dead know nothing. The dead just are done, according to the preacher. This is why it's so troublesome to him. Again, picking up in verse 5. The dead know nothing. They have no more reward. Memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished. And forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. It reminds me of a song Johnny Cash sang near the end of his life in one of the greatest covers of all time. What have I become? My sweetest friend, everyone I know goes away in the end. What is a Christian supposed to do with this? Like, is this something you can say out loud on church on a Sunday morning? I mean, clearly it is because I'm doing it. But like, am I supposed to do this? Should somebody come up after the service and be like, I didn't like that very much, which you can be welcome to do, but we'll have a conversation. 
Like this does I didn't come to church to think about my own death, Jeremy. Like I could easily just like, you know, stare at a blank wall and do that. How are we supposed to approach something like this? Well, friends, I have some good news this morning. Maybe you'd be interested in it. It's good news that the preacher didn't know anything about. I think it's something that would have brought him hope. I know it's one of the only things that brings me hope. We heard about it in our scripture reading this morning in John chapter 11. In John chapter 11, Jesus learns that his good friend Lazarus has become gravely ill. John tells us in verses 6 and 7, So when Jesus heard Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was, Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. If you've been in the book of John, you know this is disconcerting for two reasons. The first one is simply like, you don't even have to know John. It's just like, why didn't he go down earlier? He hears Lazarus is sick and he goes, check it out, we're going to stay here for two days. The other one, though, is particular to the book of John. You see, last time Jesus was in Judea, they tried to stone him to death, which is something his disciples remind him of. He's like, like, no, we're not doing that. Remember last time they tried to kill you? We're not going there. Jesus is undeterred, convinced that this event, the illness of Lazarus, has taken place in order that, as it says in verse 4, the Son of Man might be glorified through it. Jesus then informs his disciples, oh, check it out. Lazarus isn't just sick. He actually died. But that's okay because I'm going down there to wake him up. Now, his disciples don't understand what's going on, but begrudgingly get in line. In one of the most hilarious verses in the Gospels, his disciples say in verse 16, let us go also that we may die with him. Fine, we'll go see Lazarus. We're all going to die. This is great. When they get to close to Lazarus' house, Martha hears that they are coming and takes off after them to meet them on the road. Mary is so distraught, she just stays in the house. And when Martha gets to Jesus, she says in verses 21 and 22, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But, Even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give to you. Now, this is an amazing statement. Because, first of all, his disciples who have walked with him just think they're going to die. Yet here we have this woman with incredible faith, especially in the light of the fact that dead people, in case you were curious, usually stay dead. There's no doubt in Martha's mind that Jesus is not a buffoon. He's something. But there's also no doubt that Lazarus is dead. Not only that, but Lazarus has been dead for more than three days. You go, so what? You see, there's a little myth floating around that the stole stayed in the body for a couple of days after death and then departed. Jesus seems to have hung back until a point that He was dead, dead, all the way dead, real dead. No possibility of coming back dead. Then Jesus shows up. John recounts what follows. 
having heard this from Martha, verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And it is here at this point that we run into this good news that I spoke about. Friends, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in him, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in him shall never die. The question from Jesus to Martha is the question to you this morning. Do you believe this? You might be sitting here going like, I don't, I don't know if I believe that. Like, why should I believe that? Great question. Great question. Why on earth should you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life and whoever believes in him, though he die, will live forever? I've got two arguments. Number one, because right after this event, Jesus goes, rolls the stone away, and everybody goes, nah, he stinketh. That's in the King James. <laughs> Do it anyways, and they roll the stone away, and then he just goes like this. Ready? Lazarus, come forth. And then Lazarus comes forth. Now, here's the thing. That, that's pretty cool. And the people who are the religious leaders of the day are so upset at what has happened, they then, in chapter 12, conspire to kill Lazarus again because people are believing in Jesus because Lazarus is walking around. But Lazarus will die again. We're not exactly sure when and how, but that's the first argument. Here's the second one, and it's much more powerful. Because not long after that event, those in Judea would kill Jesus. The disciples weren't wrong. And for three days, all hope seemed lost. But early one Sunday morning, Jesus got up from the dead forever. Friends, take heart in the power and the resurrection of Jesus. Because, according to him, the resurrected one, his resurrection is your resurrection through faith in him. I heard that, and I appreciate it. Somebody's paying attention. Do you understand? You are going to die, but... In Christ, death is not the end of the story. Again, I know you appreciated the first poem from John Donne, so I'm going to read another one. Death, be not proud. Though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. For those whom thou thinkst thou dost overthrow, die not, poor death, nor yet canst Thou kill me from rest and sleep, which but thy pictures be much pleasure. Then from thee much more must flow, and soonst our best men with thee do go, rest of their bones and souls' delivery. Thou art slave to fate, chance, kings, and desperate men. 
and dust with poison, war, and sickness dwell. And poppy or charms can make us sleep as well. Better than thy stroke. Why swellst thou then? One short sleep past we wake eternally. And death shall be no more. Death thou shalt die. Man, if I ever wrote anything like that, I'd just retire. Drop the pen and walk away. It's amazing, friends. Through faith in Christ, death is a reality, yet the sting of it is lessened. But lest I take the teeth out of the lion in the passage before us, here's the reality of it. You're still going to die. What do you do in the meantime? Well, that's what the writer takes up in verses 7 through 10. What to do in the meantime. The preacher tells us, in fact, the preacher commands us to live in a particular way. It is so shocking that when you read it, you go, wait, what happened? Verses 7 through 10. Go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments always be white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun. Because that is your portion in life in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. There is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom and shield to which you are going. Enjoy life the best you can until the ride is over. These sections have come up before in the book of Ecclesiastes. What's different between this section and the ones that have come before it, giving us a carpe diem kind of life, a seize the day kind of ideology, is before it was kind of a suggestion. It's like, it's better to kind of seize the day than just give up on life. Here, though, we have a number of commands Go, eat, drink, let, let not, enjoy, do. In short, the preacher is emphatic that the wise person is one who inevitably lives every day towards death the best they can, enjoying the ride all along the way. Why? Verse 7, because God already approves what you do. Friends, I don't know if... uh, You know this. I know I didn't grow up hearing this. But God created the world and placed you in it. And God, because this is the world that he created, delights in you delighting in the creation that he made and put you in. God is glorified when you enjoy the world that he made for you to exist in. The movie Shawshank Redemption, one of my favorite movies, a very poignant scene at which one character says, you either get busy living or get busy dying. It's a motivational scene, and I think there's some truth to it, but I think the the preacher would have just kind of stepped into the scene and been like, hold on, rewind the tape. I need to go back on that one. He would say, you're already busy dying. Therefore, get busy living. What does enjoyment of God's creation look like? 
Well, verse 7, enjoying food and drink. Verse 8, enjoying what you wear, how you look. Verse 9, enjoy your marriage. Verse 10, enjoy whatever it is that you do. How on earth can we do this? Well, verse 9 is a great example. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun. Realize that the days of your vain, enigmatic, mysterious life are a gift. Because here's the friend, here's, here's, the, here's the reality, friends, that is, is so shocking, is so anti-everything that is surrounding us that it sounds like blasphemy. You don't deserve anything. That would have been great if everybody was like, amen, right? It didn't happen. I know you felt it on the inside. You don't deserve anything. Now, I know that we grow up saying you deserve health, wealth, happiness, liberty. No, you don't. You just deserve to die. That's all. And notice how much freedom there is if you start from that point. Every moment that I have is a gift. I don't deserve jack. Because at the moment you deserve something, then guess what? You can never get enough of it. Think about it. Think about the, your job, your lame, pathetic job that is only cool some days of the week. They can't pay you enough money to go in there. Even if you're like, dang, they pay me a lot of money. There's those days where like, they don't pay me enough money for this stupid job. Believe me, I've got one of them. If that's the goal, it'll never be enough. Here's the thing, friends. Your world could be better. Maybe. You don't know that. If it was better, it'd just be different. And here's the thing. This is the only life you have to live. This is it. It is never going to be anything other than what it is right now. Yes, huh? Tomorrow might happen. Yeah, but then you know what happens when you get to tomorrow? It's right now. That's it. And if we can learn to appreciate this, even though it might not be much better than just being a living dog, true joy can come into our lives. Let me give you a, a real practical example of this from my own life this thursday i got to cross something off a bucket list that i have this last two months has been an amazing uh, couple months in regards to music in my life as far as live concerts go i've gotten to see john prine jason isbell and on thursday night charlie hunter now you're like who's charlie hunter well like three people know about him in the world so it doesn't matter plays an eight-string guitar, and he's the hardest-grooving guitar jazz funk player on earth. You're like, this is ridiculous. Why is this happening? Here's why this is happening. Because I have been waiting for 12 years to see him in concert. And every time I am in the near proximity of where he will be playing, I have something going on or I'm out of the country. Yet, on Thursday night, the stars aligned, and Spencer and I went and saw him play. Now, I have been marinating in this text all week trying to actively focus on my own death at every moment 
been a very uh, interesting week. I go Thursday night. We get there early. We sit less than 10 feet from Charlie Hunter, and he is on fire. And Spencer and I are going crazy. I mean, Spencer, you kind of like, yeah, ooh, mm, that's good. I'm screaming my head off. And here's the thing. For an hour and a half, I experienced sheer and utter joy like I have rarely experienced in my entire life. Not kidding. I, I'm still, it is clearly evident, I'm still riding on that. He was playing in Arkansas the next night, and I thought about getting in a car and driving there. You're like, this is clearly Jeremy being hyperbolic. No, it's not. I looked it up on Google Maps. I was planning it out. I was like, that's all right. Marge gets home at what time? Uh, we'll just tell her we'll get there later. And the whole time I was there, I was like, I'm going to die. But I'm not dead yet. And this is an amazing moment of time that will go away one day. But as long as it lasts, boy, is it enjoyable. You see, friends, enjoyment of life does two things at the same time. Number one, it shows gratitude towards God. And number two, it prepares us for eternity. It shows gratitude towards God because, again, God made the world in which we are to live. He approves what we do. He has gifted you with the life that you have. He desires for you to enjoy the best you can the life that he has given you. But the important thing to know here is that it's only possible to enjoy the world if you don't worship it. And the only way to not worship the world is to worship God. It's the only way it's humanly possible. Because if you worship something that's not God, then you will find something to worship because that's what you were created to be. And anything else that you worship will let you down. Worship, worship the idea of getting a house. You know what happens when you get a house? You got a house. You worship sex and you go, this is all I want in life. And then you get it and you're like, all right. The only way out of this dilemma is to love all things in God. What does this look like? I don't love my job. I love God and see my job as a gift from him. In that world, if I get the promotion, great. If not, who cares? I don't deserve the job in the first place. I do all I do. I seek to do all I do unto the Lord because he is the only thing that I worship. Why? Because my work ain't worth my worship. I don't care how good my work is, and neither is your marriage, and neither is your school, and neither is this church. Nothing hits that level. Our enjoyment of life shows our gratitude toward God, and also it prepares us for eternity. The author here is talking about eating and drinking and dressing, enjoying life. Sounds a bit like Revelation 19. Six to nine. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, 
Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are all those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Friends, I have very little clue about what eternity will be like, but I know this, it's going to be awesome. And what we do in this life practices us for eternity. So every time you get together and feast with friends, you go, we're all going to die, but we got this. And this is just a foretaste of what is to come. And every time you walk in the park, it's the same thing. And every, th- every time you hang out and whoop your kids at a board game, it's the same thing. I'm just preparing for eternity. That's what this is. Death comes for everybody. What do we do in the meantime? We enjoy life. Why is this so necessary? My last point, because life is insanely unpredictable. Just in case we needed motivation, real motivation to enjoy the lives that we have and have been graciously given, the preacher closes by reflecting on the uncertain nature of our lives. Verse 11, again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those who with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. Friends, nothing is sure in life. You had no ability to be sure that you would be in this time, at this place, in your life five years ago, five days ago, or five hours ago. Now you might say, Jeremy, I woke up this morning fully purposed in my heart to go to church. I knew that was going to happen. It's what I do every Sunday. I'm a good Christian. Sure, that was your plan, but you had no way to be sure that that was going to happen. You could have easily died on the way here. Funny enough, we all like to plan out our lives. Some of us more than others, right? Some of us learned early on. I always laughed at this because I was like, man, I got time for that. But like, what's your one-year plan? What's your five-year plan? What's your 20-year plan? And some people have it like all laid out. And those people, I think, always get disappointed. But that's just my personal opinion. Planning isn't a bad thing. Dreaming about something. I would like to one day do X. In three years, I'd like to have this. What... What makes it so hilarious is how often our lives go off the rails. Time and chance happen to us all. That is the summary of a lot of our lives. You see, being in the hands of God means that He is in control of our lives, not us. Friends, you control so very little in this world in which you live. Providence is the name we give to God's control over all things, but providence is not something that you control. Providence is something that you experience. 
This is highlighted in the closing verse, verse 12. For man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of men are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. Friends, it only goes on till it's over. And no one knows when that will be. Death just seems to fall upon us. In the light of these realities, we are faced with a decision. Seeing the inevitability of our evil deaths coming towards us, we can just give up on life. Everything I do is just polishing the brass on a sinking ship. Might as well just give up and die now. We could do that. We can live as if things here ultimately matter, getting wrapped up in the ridiculous particularities of life while forgetting about ultimate things. Worshiping them and thus removing our ability to enjoy them and worship God. Or we can embrace our coming deaths with both hands. Saying, though, this is not comfortable. And in fact, though everything within me rages against the idea that I should embrace this, I will because it is coming. But I exist in the hands of a good God who has given me Jesus Christ as assurance of what happens after that death. And therefore, I will enjoy my life the best I can, knowing that life is unpredictable. But knowing that however it goes in the end, I win. Friends, keeping the inevitability of death and the instability of life in mind is the best way to live well. Let's pray. I pray for those who struggle with death who are fearful of what lies before them, either because of a particular situation in their lives or just a general fear of what is to come. I pray for those who have a hard time living, either because they know they are going to die or because Life has not matched their expectations. I pray for those who are resting in the assurance of the plans that they have made for their lives or those who are living in the burned out hulk of a plan gone awry. I pray that you would turn all our eyes to Jesus. The one who in the midst of sure death and an insecure life gives us a place to stand. Gives us the assurance of your goodness towards us. We pray that we would rest in that assurance and nothing else every day of our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.